Good morning. Um, it's, uh, it's fun to see you face-to-face all week as I was preparing. I was picturing uh, you guys, the collective you, uh, not any specific individuals. It's not like I'm saying you need this message, but uh, I'm grateful to have the chance to share with you now, finally at last. Um, and I am the young adults guy here at Platt Park. Today, my wife Melanie and I are hosting a uh, little open house at 5 o'clock at our place if you're in the 20s to 30s range, if you self-identify as a young adult, as I've said it, we would love to have you. Um, food and drink will be provided. Uh, we'll play some games and uh, spend some time together just getting to know one another as I work towards kind of building a community of young adults here. So we, uh, we would love to have you. And as Susie said, uh, over the next several weeks, we're exploring this topic of forgiveness, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. And I would encourage you, uh, there are sermon notes in the programs. If you didn't get one, no one's going to judge you if you need to go grab one. But um, we would, uh, I'd encourage you to think about these questions as we go through this series and answer these questions for yourself. What is it? What is it? What is it? Uh, what, it is, what is forgiveness not? And why does it matter to us? Um, wrestle with those questions and for your own reflection and growth and application. I won't be specifically answering those questions, but there are application points out of this that I think will that you can draw out for your own situation. And there are also a couple of uh, fill-in-the-blank things that uh, will be there as I go along. So I want to start with a prayer from a book that I used this week. This is the prayer before the prayer. I want to be willing to forgive, but I dare not ask for the will to forgive in case you give it to me, and I am not yet ready. I'm not yet ready for my heart to soften. I'm not yet ready to be vulnerable again. Not yet ready to see that there is humanity in my tormentor's eyes. Or that the one who hurt me, who hurt me may also have cried. I'm not yet ready for the journey. I'm not yet interested in the path. I'm at the prayer before the prayer of, th- of forgiveness. Grant me the will to want to forgive. Grant it to me, not yet, but soon. Prayers from a, a book uh, that I immersed myself in this week called The Book of Forgiving by Bishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter, Impo uh, Tutu. It's a marvelous and beautiful book that lays out a fourfold path for, of forgiveness, and it's born out of Tutu's work um, as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa as they rebuilt their country after they got rid of apartheid, which was a government built on racism. And it's powerful stuff to think of, of forgiveness in terms of this massive grand scale of a country engaging in forgiveness so that it would not descend into a civil war, into a bloodbath. Forgiveness itself is this massive, big ideal, and it's glorious, and it's noble, and it's grand, and it's sweeping in its scope. It could even be said that forgiveness is at the very center of the story of God, the person and work of Jesus his birth, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection and ascension, all together are this incarnational work of forgiveness, of redemption, of reconciliation, of bringing humanity back to God. And I would imagine we all applaud and cheer for forgiveness in this grand scale. This forgiveness is a theme of so many movies and stories that we've heard over the years. But what about when it comes down to us personally? What about when it gets very narrow and focused and personal in scope? Forgiveness becomes much more poignant, much more real, and much more difficult to to deal with. One of the quotes that the tutu share is this, 
Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. And that's a heck of a statement to to wrestle with. And I would encourage you to let it roll around inside your head. Maybe work its way down, seep its way down towards your heart. Forgiveness means letting go of our attempts to control and manipulate the past into being something that it can never, ever be. Forgiveness means looking back and admitting that something broke and maybe broke badly. And there's nothing we can do to change it. Forgiveness means fully confronting the reality of whatever it was that happened. And that's vulnerable, very intimate, very personal, and difficult work. So as I raise these questions and these thoughts, and as I poke and prod into these places, where do you begin to feel yourself resisting? Where's that pain inside of you? How long has your hurt been there? Where is your brokenness? Where do you need to begin to forgive? I recognize this is very, very difficult work, and that's the work that I want to ask you to begin to consider. Forgiveness means beginning to confront our past hurts, our pains, our betrayals, our abuses, our neglects, our violations, our sorrows, our disappointments. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. As you begin to wrestle with this notion, I want you to know that this is something that I have deeply and thoroughly wrestled with myself. So on Thanksgiving weekend in the year 2000, Melanie and I, my wife, we moved out here to help start a church. Um, We had been involved in a very tight-knit student ministry there. Melanie ran the junior high ministry. I did the college ministry. And a dear friend and co-worker led the senior high ministry as the overall youth pastor for the church. And as things ended there, our friend felt called to plant a church here in Denver and asked us to come out and be involved. So we did. We moved without jobs to a strange new city to love and lead people towards Jesus in a way that met them where they were, in a way that was relevant to their real lives. Our friend was the senior pastor. I was the the worship pastor, and Melanie was essentially the executive pastor, keeping us organized and moving forward. And moving out here remains one of the biggest decisions of our lives. It shaped and formed everything about who we have become. And it would be hard to overstate how much or how intimately connected and intertwined our lives were with these friends of ours, the senior pastor and his wife and their kids. Melanie and I lived with them for a brief time when we moved out here. We worked together in planting this church. We celebrated life together in nearly every possible way through holidays and birthdays and special occasions. It was this huge communal shared adventure. And it was, it was amazing. Uh, we started out with uh, the four of us and senior pastor's aunt in a basement, the five of us in a basement, and we saw it grow to become this amazing uh, community of people. It was a quirky, strange, and loving community. And for four years, we labored together building this place um, that was a profound community of faith and we saw life-transforming experiences all around. Until. Until, until, until. Until it all imploded and senior pastor's life blew up. And I'm frankly not sure how much to say about that implosion. Um, it became clear um, 
that our friend, who'd become like family, our leader and pastor, became clear that he'd been making really bad choices for some time, and those choices had, had escalated to a boiling point. And we, when we found out about all of this, it was like taking a giant spotlight and shining it on our past. And all of a sudden, a bunch of things stood out in stark relief. We were able to see that these patterns of behavior had been happening for quite some time, and in some ways, we were complicit in enabling and encouraging that behavior. And it all got incredibly messy and incredibly confusing. And eventually, Melanie and I had to slowly back away and leave this church, which meant both of us losing our jobs at the same time, which also meant losing much of our community at that time, too. We had to walk away from this beautiful thing we'd helped create. We had to watch uh, this beautiful thing crumble and just kind of fall apart before our eyes. We had to watch people, dear, dear people who had become a part of that church, we had to watch them lose their community, in a community that might have been the only place they could have found God, because it was just uh, quirky and weird enough to, uh, for fringe weird people like us to, to, to be there. It was awful. It was a really gut-wrenching season of life, and it wrecked us. It wrecked me. Um, On top of all that was going on, I was grieving the loss of my father, who had just died before everything imploded. And I was hurt, and I was bitter and cynical. I was lonely and angry and really struggling to find God in all of it. I was incredibly disappointed with um, God's work at that point, frankly. And we broke contact with our friend who was a senior pastor. We had to back away, and we lost a trusted leader and a close friend. And I was really angry at him. I felt betrayed, uh, and that anger bound me to him in some pretty profound ways, even though we had left. So for now, I want to pause that story, and we'll come back to it later. I said earlier that forgiveness sits at the very center of God's grand story of redemption Forgiveness is one of the biggest, grandest ideals that there is. And the person and work of Jesus is this huge gesture of God's love and grace, of God working to forgive humankind on a massive scale. And that's absolutely true and beautiful and real and necessary. But forgiveness is not only a big ideal. It's very intimate and personal. And in preparing for this week, I I remembered a story from the Scriptures where Jesus has to work through an issue with one of his very best friends. To set the scene of all this, throughout the four Gospels, which are kind of the biographies of Jesus' life that start the New Testament, uh, throughout the, those, those Gospels, Bible scholars have long noted that Jesus had, had, had some friends who were really his inner circle. There were about 120 people that seemed to have followed Jesus around all the time um, as he did ministry. And then there were 12 disciples. Everybody knows about the 12 disciples. But inside of those 12, there were three that were really his closest, best friends who he really brought very close to himself. And that was Peter, James, and John. But strangely, on the night before Jesus was killed, he predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter protests loudly, saying that there's no way that'll happen. I would be willing to die for you, Jesus. And in fact, Peter's the only one who drew a sword ready to fight the soldiers um, on that night that Jesus was betrayed. But ultimately, that's how it all goes down. Peter denies that he ever even knew Jesus. During the night, while Jesus is being interrogated and beaten, 
entering the darkest moments of his life, Peter denies, swearing loudly that he ever even knew, he doesn't even know Jesus, doesn't know who he is. Jesus' best friend bails on him in his time of dark, in his darkest time, in his hour of need. And it occurred to me that I often see Jesus as superhuman and kind of impervious to that kind of personal hurt. But if you've ever been betrayed, you know how bad that hurts. And Jesus would have felt that incredibly deeply. Peter would have felt that incredibly deeply. But skipping a whole bunch of information, let's jump to the fact that marvelously and gloriously, Jesus raises from the dead, and he appears to his disciples a couple of times. But he and Peter don't have a chance in those moments to work things out, to talk things out. So I want you to remember a time when you've had a fight or a disagreement with a close friend or a loved one or a family member. You know that weird, icky feeling of not having yet cleared the air and gotten things right, where everything is awkward and unspoken, and maybe you're in the same room with them, and you don't know how to approach them or broach the subject. Peter has to still be in that kind of a place, because the last time he saw Jesus was uh, when Jesus was dying. But here he is. He's seen Jesus raised from the dead, but their personal relationship is still broken. So finally, in John chapter 21, there's a beautiful scene, which has long been one of my favorites of all of Scripture, where Jesus makes what I call the first breakfast after the Last Supper, where he cooks breakfast for his friends. Peter and the disciples go out fishing, but not like fly fishing fishing for sport. They were casting nets fishing to gather fish for a market. Um, Their night of fishing is wildly unsuccessful at that point until Jesus appears on the shore and tells them where to cast their nets. And they catch a huge bunch of fish And that's where we pick up the story. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread, the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then Jesus told him, follow me. I've loved this passage for a long time, but it wasn't until this week that I kind of saw the humanity and the vulnerability and the intimacy, the awkward intimacy that this scene kind of contains. Jesus and Peter's relationship was damaged by his denial, and they needed reconciliation, a making things right and fresh and new. And Peter had seen Jesus twice before this, and now here Jesus is again. And Peter seems kind of thrown out of sorts, if you think about the story, when he realizes it's Jesus. One could view his grabbing his tunic and jumping into the water as him kind of trying to hide himself. 
he leaves his friends with like to haul in everything and he just kind of bails out. Similar to the way Adam hid from God in the Garden of Eden, God asks Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam responds, because I was naked and ashamed. Peter's actions here kind of look like that. Like he's hiding because he was naked and ashamed. He doesn't know what to do now that he's close up to Jesus again. Then when Jesus asks them to bring the fish aboard, Peter's like, hey, I'll do it. Uh, I, I got this. Like he wants to get away from the situation in a way. Then finally after breakfast, Jesus turns and face to face with Peter and starts talking because Jesus knows that Peter cannot move forward with his work of leading the people of God until the air is cleared. Forgiveness is a big and grand and glorious ideal that sits at the very heart, the very center of God's redemptive story, but it's also the most vulnerable and intimate experience we can have. Forgiveness gets down to the nitty-gritty and marrow of our lives. Jesus and Peter had to have a moment where they looked at each other face-to-face to talk through what had happened. In order to move forward, they had to confront something from their shared past. They had to give up all hope of a better past in order to have a better future. I'll say that again. They had to give up all hope of a better past. They couldn't fix what had happened. They couldn't, they couldn't mend what was broken when, when Peter denied who Jesus was. They had to give up a hope of a better past in order to have a better future. Forgiveness is central to the story of God, I believe, because we all have so much accumulated and unresolved trauma and pain in our lives. God knows we live in a broken world, and he knows we have much that we need to forgive because we are regularly hurting and wounding one another. Unresolved trauma keeps us bound to the past. We have so much that we need to work through, whether it's parents who were absent and hurt us, or who smothered us and did too much, whether it's siblings who know how to hurt us better, quicker, and deeper than anybody else, to extended family, where so much abuse originates, to peers who can be so mean and nasty when we engage school, to romantic relationships, maybe it's coaches or teachers that have hurt us, or employers or supervisors or coworkers. I would venture a guess that unresolved trauma is one of the greatest crises we face as a society because it's the source of so many other problems. But it doesn't have to stay that way. We do not have to remain bound to the past. Another idea from the book of forgiving begins to give us some hope. You may not have had a choice in being harmed, but you can always choose to be healed. So very often the trauma that we experience comes to us through no fault of our own. Most often it comes to us through no fault of our own. But regardless of that pain, we can always choose the path of healing. Can you begin to believe that? Can you believe that you have power and agency again? What if it's true? What if you can let go of your hurt and pain? Your wounds might not be your fault, but pursuing healing is always an option. And so often when we live in unforgiveness, we feel like slaves to a past that we cannot change. We feel like we have no power. But that's just not true. You have agency to move towards healing. You may not have had a choice in being harmed, but you can always choose to be healed. 
What does that look like? And how can we get started? And again, all I want to ask you is to begin to consider the possibility that forgiveness is possible. The book of forgiving lays out a very simple and elegant fourfold path to forgiveness. And I would highly recommend reading this book or listening to this book to begin your process. That fourfold process, the fourfold path of forgiveness is telling the story, is naming the hurt, and then granting forgiveness, and then renewing or releasing the relationship. What's beautiful about this fourfold path is that we can see elements of this from the story of Peter and Jesus. They were in a different cultural setting, but these elements are here. The way that Jesus spoke to Peter was a way of retelling the story, was a way of retelling the story, naming the hurt. And the way that Jesus called Peter to be a shepherd to his people was a granting of forgiveness and a renewing of their relationship. The way that Jesus and Peter resolved their situation was, was more appropriate to that time and culture, but the elements are all still there. So for us, beginning to move for, towards forgiveness, stepping onto the path of forgiveness begins with telling our stories. For many of us, we're likely nowhere near granting, granting forgiveness or deciding what to do with the relationship, but telling the story is a way that we can begin to get our dignity back. Telling the story is how we move away from being helpless and powerless to having agency, to making intentional decisions. Telling the story helps us make meaning of the situation. And not telling our story keeps us in chains to the perpetrator, to the, keeps us in chains to the one who has wronged us. And I would encourage you to take care who you decide to tell your story to. They must be trustworthy, as this is no small matter. In the book of forgiving, they go into great detail about the way to go about the process of forgiving. But it must be a safe and trustworthy person. And something happens once we start telling our story. Something happens that as we, re we go through the facts, we can begin to identify feelings inside of those facts. And that's the second step on the fourfold path. And that's naming the hurt. And I would encourage you that no feelings are invalid here. Rage and anger, sadness and grief, disappointment, all of these things are here. Don't edit your feelings too quickly. Taking the time to tell the story allows the feelings and the hurts to rise to the surface so that you can know what you need to forgive. And understand that these are just the beginnings. It may take time and many tellings of the story before the feelings start to surface. And it may take time of living with those feelings because, before you're ready to proceed towards granting forgiveness. And understand that this, this is cyclical. Sometimes you go through it and you bounce back, and you go through it and you bounce back. Our trauma is hard to deal with, and it takes time. And that's completely fine. Take all the time you need here. In fact, going back to my own story, it took a lot of my telling and retelling the story before I could fully identify and name the hurt. And I stayed in that place for a long time, telling the story and naming the hurt over and over again. I had not yet given up all hope of a better past. I was trying to kind of manipulate and change the past and somehow, in some way in my mind, and it could not happen. And I was blaming myself that I couldn't have saved the situation somehow. And if I'm honest, I got stuck there. I got stuck there in that pain, and my pain became part of my identity. The story of all that became part of my identity. And it seems strange to say, but our wounds can become our identities. We use our wounds to leverage uh, and to manipulate others. We go over and over our wounds until they become the most true thing about us. By and large, I thought I had stuffed it down and was moving on, but in reality, I was harboring unforgiveness. 
I've heard that some people in the state may even uh, look up others' social media profiles just so they can roll their eyes and scoff and internally judge and swear at those who've harmed them. Not that I ever did anything quite like that. Um, but it's a way we harbor that anger and we just like, oh, man. Those, uh. Ultimately, several years later, I was contacted by that old friend because he was working through some things and wanted to make amends for his wrongs. So we scheduled a breakfast. And it was kind of terrifying to think of going over all of this with him face to face, but I was willing to step towards healing. And in between his contacting me and setting up the time when we were going to meet, um, I went on a little, it was a couple weeks, and so part of the thing I had planned was I went on a fishing trip with some friends who knew me really well and I'd been friends with for a very long time. And I told them, hey, I'm going to be getting together with this guy for breakfast. And they were like, oh, wow, yeah, that'll be really good for you. I was like, what's that supposed to mean? So then a few days later after that fishing trip, I was with another group of friends and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be getting together for breakfast with that guy. And they're like, oh, that'll be really good for you. I was like, what? What? Uh, what's that supposed to mean? I thought I was hiding it, but people knew I was carrying something. So we did meet, and I went through those things, and I was able to finally bounce past naming the hurt to granting forgiveness and ultimately releasing the relationship. And my friends were right. It was good for me. Finally, finishing that path of forgiveness was incredibly significant. And a lot of the chains that had kept me bound to him for years kind of melted away, and I was able to release him. And now I genuinely do nothing but wish him well in that uh, health and growth. I didn't have to stay in my pain. I had agency to move forward in forgiveness instead of staying stuck in the past. But as part of this process, and even thinking this week, I realized I have someone else I need to forgive too. And that's God himself. I was so disappointed at the way that church blew up. And a whole host of other disappointments and wounds came my way after we lost our church. There was family stuff. My mom passed away. I looked and looked and looked for a job in, in my in ministry and did not find it. And my anger and frustration with God had been festering and festering and festering. And that I realized that I'd been stuck in that. That stuckness is largely due to my not being willing to forgive God for him not running my life the way I thought he should. For not meeting my expectations. For feeling distant. For being invisible. <laughs> for not protecting me the way I thought he should. And as a result, I've kept myself from God in a way, trying to take revenge on him by withholding myself from him. And I've told this story too and named that hurt to close friends for a long time. But in a lot of ways, it's become part of my identity of being the distant, sad, cynical guy who harbors some hurts. And I've realized it's time for me to take those next steps even in my relationship with God to grant forgiveness and renew my relationship with him. So what about you? Where are you holding on to hurt or pain or trauma? Is your hurt causing you to hold out from God too? Can you begin to let it go? You may not have had a choice 
in being harmed, but you can always choose to be healed. Let's pray. God, we breathe deep, believing, hoping, trusting that you are good and that somehow, some way, you can bring um, resolution and healing into situations that seem impossible. We pray that you would give us the courage to step onto this path of forgiving, to step onto the path of healing for your glory and our greater good. Amen.